All right, hey everybody, how you doing? Thanks for being here. My name's Dave, I'm one of the pastors. Hey Derek! <laughs> um, it's, diff it's, it's a scary thing to give a preacher a microphone, because you know he's going to start preaching. Um, I did want to say something about him being an anchor. So, I, listen, I know this is church and we all want to make friends, you know, we want to worship God and, and be spiritual and all that stuff, but there, we, all, we understand that you want to make relationships, I do. And I've been, a, this is going on close to eight years I've been a part of OCC, and I'm going to tell you the honest truth, the way that I made some of my closest friends was by becoming an anchor. My, the very first thing I was assigned to, I signed up. I don't remember if we were doing text back then. I'm so old, I probably didn't even have a cell phone. Um, uh, Ann McFerrin put me at the door. I was the greeter. That was my first anchor position, and I loved it. I was just hugging everybody that was coming in, and uh, they were like, this guy's weird. we got to get him away from the front door. So they, they, uh, they put me, uh, I got a, they didn't put me. Maybe they did. They're like, maybe no one can see him. I got to be in first through fifth grade, and the first person I anchor served was, with, was Danny Strickland, and I really didn't know him. I'm like, God, this guy's head is huge, and he's crazy. Uh, but he could just manage the whole thing well. And the thing is, Ann and Dan have become me and Sarah, some of me and Sarah's closest friends over the years. And Danny, I'm, Danny and I still serve. With, he, he serves on Wednesday night as students. We still, uh, we're still around together. We're still friends. And so if you're here and you're looking to connect more that way, the best place to do it is by becoming an anchor and going shoulder to shoulder with people. Great stuff uh, by Derek. But if, you're, if you haven't been with us, we're in our Come and Listen series this has been going on since 2014, basically going through the entire Bible. It's called The Story of God, The Story of Us. It's really about the story of Jesus, and I get excited about this stuff. I know that sounds typical, but I said this in the, the first gathering. I know we're preachers, right? Like, we're supposed to be excited about this stuff, but when, we, when I'm reading these things, when I'm going and I'm doing my research, and Derek would say the same thing, I'm not Pastor Dave. I'm Dave. And I'm reading it, and God, I'm seeing things that I've never seen before, and they're for me. And I would say, thank you for being here, but be in the scriptures. Seek God. Read your Bible. God wants to speak through, to you through them. Um, that's just another sermon. Um, anyway, so last two weeks, come and listen. We were in Ezra 4 last week. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 5 today. Three passages, Ezra 5, Haggai 1, and Zechariah 3. Those are the, where we're going to be going. I'm going to kind of give you a quick recap in case you missed it. Two weeks ago, Derek talked about worshiping in the rubble. The temple's destroyed, and it was so good. Go back and listen to it. Last week, he was talking about what happens when you're trying to build uh, God's kingdom and being part of all these things, and you face opposition. Today, we're going to be in five, and you're going to see that they begin rebuilding the temple. So if you don't know, this is the setting in this historical book of Ezra. The, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, they get uh, smashed up. The first temple was glorious, built by King Solomon. Absolutely stunning. The Babylonians destroy this place. They all become slaves, and now they've been captive. They're gone, and they live there. Seventy years pass. This king arises. God puts it on him and says, hey, send the Israelites and the Jews back. They're going to go rebuild my house. And so they do. Derek talked about it last week. They get there. They're all excited, and they start to build, and they're like trying to get their identity back because they've been slaves for so long. And what happens? Opposition comes, and the only thing that they finish is the foundation. It's just a floor, and that's where we find ourselves in Ezra 5. And it's been, when we start this first verse, it's been about 10, 15, some scholars think even 17 to 20 years since anything has been done, and the people are just kind of living. They're living, and they're doing their thing, and, and they're just living their life. So turn with me to Ezra 5. Oh, start with Zechariah 3. I forgot this part. My bad. Um, 
you're going to see some symbolism. You're going to see yourself in these passages. I saw myself in them. You're going to see Jesus, even though this was written hundreds of years before he even walked to earth. You're going to see his story, the story of God, the story of Jesus, and I want you to look for it. Zechariah 3, listen, high priest Joshua. Some translations say Jeshua. This is not the same guy that was hanging out with Moses. This is a different guy. He says, you and your associates seated before you are men symbolic of things to come. And I want you to see it. It's all over these passages, and it's incredible. So Ezra 5, go to your Bibles, first chapter, um, first verse. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edu, sounds like a Star Wars name to me, prophesied over the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who is with them. In Zerubbabel, remember him, he's going to be very important, symbolism. In Jeshua, I'm skipping their dad's names because I don't know how to pronounce them. Set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Thank you for laughing. And the prophets of God were with them. They were supporting them. Important. At the same time, Tatiani from Endor or some other Star Wars planet, the governor of the province behind the river, that's the Euphrates River, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, um, saying, who gave you a decree to build this house and finish the structure? Very important. Remember these questions. They also asked him this. What are your names? What are your names? Who are you? What are your names? What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until the letter was sent out. So let's look at these, these people, these different people within the story. So you see what's happening. The foundation is built. The prophets come and preach to them and support them, and they're, they're going to start rebuilding it. Zerubbabel, uh, he was the grandson of the very last king of Judah. Right before it got destroyed, his, grands, his dad was the last king. And his name is no longer a Hebrew name. He's lived, he's grown up, his heritage was his, was his, was his king granddad. Now he's, his name is literally a Babylonian name that means uh, offspring of Babylon. So he's not even, his, his rights have been taken, his heritage has been gained, his name has been changed. And what does Babylon represent? Sin, idol worship, slavery, bondage. So now his, he literally is just a step. He used to have an identity, he used to have a name, and now he's just the offspring of sin. He's been cast out. So much so that he's been cursed. His family was cursed. There's a prophecy. Uh, he was the family of the last, last king, his grand, granddad, but his, there was a prophecy in Jeremiah 22, 24. And literally, his granddad was cursed. It, it says that uh, God says to this king, Jerichon, if you were like a royal ring or a signet ring on my hand, I would tear it off. And it literally becomes known as the curse of Jerichon. And that's what's spoken over him. They don't even call him a king anymore. You notice that? He's from the line of royalty, but he's, been ca he's a ca castaway. He's out, and now they, they just call him a governor. Zerubbabel. And then Jeshua. He's this high priest they call him. They're preaching at him. And he was the grandson of the last high priest before it got destroyed. It's been 70 years. No one has seen it. He's there. He, they're, he's like, well, this is what I'm supposed to be, but I'm unequipped. There's not, there's, all we have is this floor. I don't know what I'm doing. There's all this expectation for the Jews. The, nothing was bigger than that temple, right? 
They weeped when they saw the foundation being rebuilt. Remember when Derek was teaching that? And here's this guy. He's like, I know this is who I'm supposed to be, but this weight is almost more than I can bear. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never seen it happen. And still, I'm supposed to be the one to, to serve here and lead this and do this? Symbolism. And he would have heard the stories from his granddad about the first temple. Part of the reason those guys wept so loud is because this foundation was so much smaller than the first one. Solomon's temple was amazing. The gates itself were built out. They were huge. The front gates of this temple were built out of cypress wood, and they were were carved in the shapes of, of giant fig leaves. And engraved in them, overlaid with gold, were pictures of palm trees, flowers, pomegranates, and cherubim, cherubs, angels, what guarded the garden of God. When the man got kicked out, the angels with cherub with the flaming swords. Cool stuff. And it says that he built it after that. And here are these guys. And everything seems good. We got to go into Haggai. Because Haggai gives you an actual picture of what the people were doing, how they were feeling, what the culture was like, how they were spending their lives. All right, let's take a look. Haggai uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, the high priest. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. Now, this is where it hit me, man. Remember when I was saying I wasn't just Pastor Dave, I was being Dave? Because it sounds a lot like me. It sounds like our life. It sounds like exactly the way we live. You ready? Let's go. The people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. It's just a foundation. They're just kind of living at this point. It's been 15 years Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and he says, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while my house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful ways to your thoughts. God would say that to us. Give careful ways to your thoughts. You ready? You have planted much. You harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Does that not describe so much of what our day and age is like? What do we do? We're just constantly building. We're constantly busy. We're constantly eating, drinking, consuming, right? Making money, paying bills. It sounds like how we live. We're building houses. For those that are uh, successful, you're buying new cars, putting them on Instagram, new boats, going on vacation, right, living it up. I got a buddy who's a fireman. He openly admits he calls it stuffitis. He, he, just, he just has money, and he just buys stuff, and he collects things. He gave me a bunch of clothes one time, the coolest Vulcan jacket, and Asher, my oldest, lost it. It was so cool. I always felt so cool wearing that jacket in the wintertime. He lost it in Montana. I'm still bitter about it, if you can't tell. But he gave me this jacket, all these nice new shoes, and he wore them like one time. And he's like, here, Dave, you can have I said, man, why are you getting rid of this stuff? He's like, I just bought a bunch of new stuff. He's just like over, consu- you know, just consuming it, you know, like, and isn't that kind of what we do, like consume, collect, pay, repeat, just over and over and over again, consume, collect, pay some stuff, do it again. We just never kind of have enough, or even the opposite is still the same. Maybe you're financially, uh, what's a good way to say it, uh, poor, I don't know, that one works, right? 
You don't have as much money. You're not buying new boats, but you're still doing the same thing, aren't we? You're like always trying to get by, make sure you have enough money. You're super busy. Sometimes you're working two, three jobs just to make sure you can pay for soccer for your kid or lacrosse for this or, or uh, whatever it is. Make sure the rent gets covered. Either way, it's like we just keep doing the same thing. We're, we're paying, we're collecting, we're consuming, we're starting over. It's like our money just goes in our our pocket and just falls completely out, or at least that's exactly how I feel every time I go to Publix. I'm like, what? Where? How much for a rotisserie chicken? I only bought $400 for groceries? Oh my God, that's a bad joke. But you know what I'm saying? Like, either way, excess or lacking, we're all kind of just doing the same thing. And I'm, I'm be honest with you, I struggle with this because I'm always worried about money and paying stuff. Like, we bought this new house, it was two floors this eight years ago, and the AC, apparently when you have two, I know this now, two stories means two ACs. Didn't know this. I'm like, well, what's wrong with just the one? And apparently it's not good enough, you need two, and they're very expensive. And that one was old, the one where the kids sleep upstairs. So I'm like, all right, I got some prices. I'm saving up. I'm getting close. I'm going to buy a new AC. Great, Dad. Keep my kids cool in Florida. Bam, roof starts leaking. New roof. And I'm like, oh, gosh. You know, I freak out. And I get the roof fixed. And I'm just like, if there is a God. I was out there anointing that old AC, like praying over it, like, please don't die. God did not answer my prayers. It died in the middle of July. And I was like, oh, I had no more money. I spent it all on this roof. So, you know, I don't need an AC guy. I'm financially challenged, so all I need is YouTube. So I go on there, and I'm going to fix this thing myself. i got tools, firemen, you know, like, how hard can it be? Watch a million videos, harder than you think. Uh, and I'm like, it'll be fine. Apparently, there's a lot of electricity that runs to a heat pump. Because I didn't turn it off. And when I went to go do my repair, I skipped past the please secure power part, and when I stuck that screwdriver in there, it shocked me so bad. My, I was all sweaty. It's July. <clears throat> Made my tongue stick out. I was like, Ugh! I fell over. I mean, I remember like rolling around in the grass next to it, like Ugh! getting up. I'm seeing spots. I'm like, I gotta find Sarah. This is it. I'm gonna die. Where's the sliding glass door? I open it up. I'm like, Sarah. she's looking at me like, what has happened to you? You know, like I just got shocked. I love you. Tell the kids I love them. You know, none of that part happened. I'm being exaggerating. Regardless, stupid story, no spiritual content there, other, just making the point here. Excess or lacking, more than enough, not enough, consume, collect, pay, rent, and then what? Do we just die? Is that our purpose? I mean, I've said this before in another, another talk we talked about joy. It's like, you can be happy in life. Like, I've been happy. I'm happy right now, you know, I guess. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. But it's like sand and water. You can, I can go to the beach, and I can hold the ocean water. I have it. I can hold that sand. I can possess it. But what does it do? It just eventually just falls all out, doesn't it? And what do we do? We just spend our lives collecting it, consuming it, trying to possess something we can never get, or as Solomon said, very wise, chasing the wind. I can never catch the wind, but our American lives, and I think it was happening here in Ezra, we're just constantly chasing something that will always evade us. You can't hold it. You can't, cons you, can't, you can't keep it. Consume, collect, pay, and repeat. Are we not made for more? Are we just here to like chase the wind and experience some happiness, consume, collect, and maybe bolt a little church in there every couple of weeks? You know, like just, yeah, we're busy. We're living life. We're building things. We're building our houses. We're going to lacrosse and soccer. And, you know, I'll hit, I'll hit church here or there, you know, bolt it in there. I'll be doing good. I don't, 
I don't think that that is our purpose. Uh, Pastor Dave, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I did all these things and still do, but are we not made for more? Is God's purpose bigger than that? And I believe the scriptures here say, show that it is. We're, we're not just to build our own house, our paneled houses, build our lives. We're supposed to be about building God's house, God's kingdom, right? God's kingdom. You can hear Jesus if you've ever read any of the gospel. What does Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom. This is Jesus who we follow. My kingdom is not of this world, but man, do I not spend a lot of time building my own kingdom on the sand and on these rocks of this earth. We all do, don't we? We're all busy with our, our own things. Haggai 1, it keeps, gets better. 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. He repeats it. Go up to the mountains and bring down till timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored. ESV says glorified and be glorified. Verse 9. This, when I read this, this is just like sums it up for me. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be a little. What you brought home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Man. I mean, is that not what expectations like? We put all our hope, all, our, all of our, our dreams in this thing. We're trying to build our own kingdom, and it can so easily be blown away. I expected much, and it turned out to be little. Why? He answers it. Our expectations almost always fall short on what we think things are going to be like. And I think scripturally here, it's, 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 it's the God is trying to get us to ask ourselves some tough questions about the way we live and how we spend our time. How are you spending your lives? What are you spending your time on? What are you chasing after? Could it be we're chasing the wrong things? Maybe that's why he's trying to communicate to my heart and to my mind. Maybe I'm chasing after the wrong thing. I'm, I'm putting my hope in maybe something that's going to make me happy here. I'm building a kingdom for myself, but really I'm chasing the wrong thing. Or like Jesus said, hey, Matthew 7, 25, don't build your house on the sand. Because what? When the wind comes... And the rain comes, it will fall. But build your house, your kingdom on the rock. Jesus, the sure foundation, when the winds come and the rains come, it will still stand. So, is God saying building our lives and working and seeking happiness and going to soccer and going to the lacrosse games for my kid and surfing, fill in the blank, whatever it is for you, and spending a Saturday playing golf or whatever your thing is, is God saying that those things are bad? Is making money bad? Is working bad? Is building it, having a nice house and paying for these things for my kids and my wife? Is it bad to go on a vacation? Does God just want us all to be poor and uh, become monks and just live in the woods until Jesus comes back? Is that what he's saying here? Does God not want me to be happy? I thought Jesus said he'd come to give me life and give it abundantly, because he did say that. Does he want me to be happy? Is it bad to want to be happy? Is it wrong to chase and seek? And I'll put it this way. Is it wrong even to desire happiness and desire things in this world? Is it wrong? Is God saying it's wrong? I don't think that's what it's saying at all. I do not think that. I think when we really look at how we were made, we've been made in the image of God. 
We've been created by him. We are wired and built to seek. He made us this way. We're wired to seek. We're wired, wired to chase. We're wired to build and cultivate and grow. It's one of the very first commandments in the garden. He makes Adam and Eve, and he says, go and be fruitful and multiply and build and, and, and expand. We're wired to chase. We're wired to seek. But ultimately, this is the pinnacle of our human existence. We are wired ultimately to worship and worship him only. We are wired to worship. And if we chase only our own happiness and build only our own houses and build only our own kingdoms, they're only temporary and will never be satisfied and complete. That's why the expectation always gets blown away. God's like, don't you realize I'm trying to tell you, I, don't, I want you to be happy, but you'll never find it unless you are in me, unless you are chasing me, unless you are worshiping me. That is why I made you. We're not to, meant to just build our house and our kingdom. We're meant to build God's. Or in other words, God is glorified when we worship him and we are most satisfied in him. Is it not what Jesus was trying to say in Matthew 6? But see, are they ready for this? Take this passage and plop it into there. Seek, this is Jesus now. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. But we got it backwards and so did thee. We try to do it backwards. Jesus said, no, seek me, chase me, worship me first and I will take care of the other things. Are you not more important than the lilies, more important than the sparrows? Are you, I'm, I'm gonna do this for you, but we do it backwards. We do it just like they did in Ezra. We, we're busy. We're busy, and we're just going to try to seek them when it's convenient, don't we? I do it. We're just going to bolt them in instead of having it other way around. Could it be we're chasing the wrong things? It is what we are wired, but hear this. This is a statement I really want to make. You see, if we only chase and seek after the things of this world, eventually we will end up worshiping the things in this world because we're wired for all three. And when we have them backwards, they can make us slaves. They can put us in bondage, and we'll just consume, collect, and pay till we die. We need him. We're made to worship him. I like the way C.S. Lewis uh, put it. This is a long um, quote, but it's awesome. Read it with me. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do, so contains an appeal to desire. You see that, desire? If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and has no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider, this is awesome. Here, this part is so cool. If we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to just make mud pies in the slum because he cannot fathom 
or imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. That is awesome. David, OCCJax.com. If you want that, I'll copy and paste it and send it to you. It's a great quote. It's from The Weight of Glory and Other Addresses. I mean, but let's ponder it with me. Let's, let's, let's think about it. What if he's right? What if we're chasing the wrong things? What if that's what God is trying to tell them and tell us? No, you don't understand. You, you're, you're chasing after things that are so, they're, 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 they're too small. They're too, too weak. What I have, what I have to offer in Jesus is so much bigger. It's so much grander. Or like it says in Revelation, no eye has seen and no ear has heard what God has in store for those he loves. Could it be we're chasing the wrong things and we just don't realize it? Now, this story is, is remember, we're talking about symbols, Zerubbabel, Jeshua. Those are symbols of us, symbols of the f- things to come. Uh, this story is about the second temple being rebuilt, but it's also symbolic of what God is getting ready to do in humanity, what Jesus was fixing to do when he comes on the earth and the cross and the resurrection, what he was about to do. If the first temple represented the law in the old way, the second one, when Jesus comes, the temple of God, which just means dwelling place of God, is no longer going to be on this earth. He's going to start to build his house, his dwelling in human hearts. He's going to start doing it in men and women. He's going to put his spirit in there instead of inside a building. This was his plan, and this is how he was going to build his kingdom and use us and call us to do the same. Oh, I'll get to that part in a minute. I was getting excited. Like (laughs) Ephesians 2, I'm about to skip the scripture. It was really important. Uh, Ephesians 2, go with me. So then you are no longer slaves and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Or just like Derek was saying, the family of God. We belong to the house of God now. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into what a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what has happened. They see the symbolic, use those from Ezra and look at what Jesus is doing in you and I. Or like Jesus said in Luke, I, can't, I should have wrote it down, forgot where it was. They come and ask him, they're like, hey, where's this kingdom thing you're talking about? He goes, hey, people are going to come up to you and say the kingdom's over there. It's not there. People are going to say, hey, it's over here. Here it is. And he says, it's not there. He goes, the kingdom of God is within you now. It was Jesus' words. God's temple, his dwelling place, his house, he's building him in my heart. And he's going to dwell in there. He's going to be with me. He's building in hearts now, houses and hearts. That's the title of this, this whole thing, houses and hearts. That's where, the, that's where the kingdom starts. That's what he is doing in humans. It's amazing. We used to be dead in sin. We had a heart of stone. And now we have a heart of flesh, and God knocks on our door, and we open it, and the Spirit comes in. Beautiful language, right? Cool Christian stuff, uh, preacher stuff. It's great. But let me be honest with you. It doesn't always feel like, I'm, like God is living in, in my heart. My Christianity doesn't always feel that way. I'm not always super into this thing. I know I get up here, and I'm like, and cry, and I'm all passionate all the time. But there's times where I'm just... I'm unfinished, like that foundation. I'm just undone. I'm not into it. I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm dealing with this issue, or I'm just indifferent at times. What about you? Does your Christianity always feel like, ooh, super spiritual, and you're just, you know, what is it? It's not always like this, is it? It's not always feeling this way. 
Sometimes we're, we're, we're not just busy, we're just trying to get by that day, aren't we? We're not trying to necessarily exclude God, but we're just kind of undone and beat up and just wanting to get to the bed at night. Sometimes you have days like that, don't you? Not that you don't want to pray, but you're just like, it's been a bad day, and I just want to go to sleep, and maybe tomorrow will be better. Sometimes we're just, we really are busy going to lacrosse and soccer or surf, surf uh, contests. I did all those things besides lacrosse with my kids. They're not bad, but they can consume, don't they? Remember the consume, collect, and pay? They can consume your life. They can take over your weeks, your travel, your money, and they're good, but man, sometimes it's just not enough time. And some of us, it's not like we're just excluding God. We're just not even sure we buy this stuff. Some of you are in this room, you're like, I'm here, but, you know, my experience with people and even church people, I'm not sure I believe this Christianity stuff. I don't even know if it's true. Maybe you've been treated poorly by somebody or poorly by somebody in the church, and you're just like, you know, I just, I got questions. I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is what these people are saying. And some of us, we're just indifferent. We just busy with our lives and we just don't really care that much. Our lives are fractured, things feel undone, unfinished, incomplete like the foundation, but this is, this is my contention and this is the hope in my soul. I believe that none of us, no matter what we're feeling like, however we walked into this room, what we're dealing with, the way that we're living, I don't think it's an accident. I think God is sovereign and I think His hand, His loving, gracious hand has carefully sought after us and he's moving after us and he's chasing us and seeking us to get into these spaces and places where we can we can connect with him where he can begin that work in the heart and in the soul no matter how we believe just like Derek said I he's called the hound of heaven a hound never stops when it gets the scent it will go until it finds that prey the spirit of God is the hound of heaven and he will never stop chasing you he will never stop going after you and seeking you because he loves you and he wants to save you and he wants to come into your soul and he wants to build you up and he wants to bring you healing and peace this is what he's like this is what they've been saying he's like for a thousand years even in the Old Testament Sorry. This is the story of God. Now hear this part. God is not me. He is so much different than us. Even if I am undifferent and I am checked out and I am finished, God does not need me. Although God loves me, he does not need me, but he loves me and he seeks after you and I. The cross, nothing says that I love you and I will do anything. I will go to the, the furthest point to save you like the cross of Jesus Christ. We are not alone. He chases after you and I. All right. So the people, the people back into Ezra, they preach at, he, this is what was happening. This is what the prophets are saying. They get it. They, they obey. They fear, and they're going to jump on building this thing. 15 years later, Haggai won. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave the message of the Lord to the people, and he says, I am with you. When we go near to God, the Bible says he goes near to us. I'm with you. You're not alone. I'm writing your story. Verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. We are not alone. He chases us. And God, would you stir up my spirit and stir up the spirits of these people in this room? 
Oh, can you imagine if he would just stir us up, stir up the beaches, stir up Ocean City Church to be about building hearts and uh, building houses and hearts, to be about inviting people into things like Life Course, just bringing them near, proximity to his grace, proximity to his love, and let them ask the hard questions themselves of God. God, make it so stir us up. We sing these songs of revival, but man, can you imagine if the Spirit of God would come and stir us up? All the symbolism, the buildings, Ezra 5. This this guy, you're going to see the symbolism. He's a picture of the world and the people in our lives. Verse 3, Ezra 5. At the same time, Tatiani, the world, people in our lives, the governor on the other side of the river, he spoke to them and said this, Who gave you a decree to build this house and finish this structure? And then he also asked him, what is your names? What's your name? What's your identity? Who are you? Why are you living this way? And what is your name? You see, when God begins to build his house and hearts, those in and around us, they get into life course and they see God. We look like them. We're unfinished we're undone, but he, they can tell, and they will seek out the answers. They'll seek kings to know why do these people live this way. They don't use the tool. They're building something. God, something is being built. I can see it, and even though they look just like me, there's something different. Something is being built, but they're not using tools. They're not using wood. They're not using stone. They're using the fruits of the Spirit. They love each other like really love each other. They're giving each other their peace. They seem joyful, love, joy, peace. Even in the midst of this undone state, I see them then. There's something different about them. Isn't that what we're trying to do as we are bumbling through this life, trying to go near the house of God, get many as people as we can to experience his grace? Even in our unfinished state, we have a testimony. We have a story. And the world will ask us these questions. Right? And those are my two points. My points today are those questions, both questions. You see it right here. Who told you to build this? Who told you to live this way? When those around us begin to ask us, that can be a scary question. You have a story. God's writing it. You have a story. You have a testimony. But you do things like life course. I'm not going to admit I was a little nervous because you're like, all right, come here and ask the hardest questions about spirituality you want. And I'm preacher Dave. I'm supposed to know all the answers, I think. You know, or if you're a Christian, you're like, oh, I've got to defend God and know, every, know everything there is to, to explain. And it's, you know, it's a little unsettling, but this is what I want to say. Your story doesn't mean you have all the answers. Your testimony doesn't mean you have all your answers. All you're called to is to love your neighbor as yourselves. That's what he said. He didn't say know everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're called to tell the story, or as Paul says, implore as many people as you can be reconciled. Point them to the cross. Let them ask and seek. Just tell them to seek. Just tell them to chase, because that's what they're meant to do. And if they go near to God and they see his beauty and they see his light, they'll worship. They'll fall down at the cross and get, they'll give their lives to him. Let God himself reveal those secrets, or as it says in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a cool verse. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. What has been, there's so many things we don't know. Let God 
do that in human hearts. But what we have, what's been revealed, is Jesus. We know. Our testimony says, well, I don't have all the answers, but I know I used to be a slave. I used to be broken down. I used to be cursed. But now, now I'm a servant of God. I've been saved. Jesus has come into my life, and it's true. And I can't tell you all the reasons why, but I can tell you on the top of that hill, like Derek was praying, on the top of that hill, there was a cross, and there was a man named Jesus, and he came, and he saves and he longs to save anyone that goes near him. Why do you live the way that you live? What is your story? Number two, what is your name? What is your identity? Gosh, think about this whole thing. We're building our lives. What are we building? Are we building an identity? Are we building a kingdom? What are we putting our hope in? And I want to challenge all of us, including myself. Who are we? What is, what's your How do you identify yourself? What are you building your life on? How are you spending your time? Are you building a kingdom for yourself? Maybe to to block the pain you're dealing with, or maybe you're building a temple. Maybe you're building a temple for for an idol in your life, and you don't even realize it's an idol yet. Are you doing things in hope of people seeing you a certain way or identifying with things? Is our identity just rooted in what we do as a job or, or as a hobby? Am I just a fireman? Am I just a surfer or a, a fisherman? What, how do you identify yourself? What's your name? Are you just a business owner or just a mom? Or just a fill in the blank? How, what's our name? How are we identified? You know, sometimes I've had some friends... They were moms, and they just loved being moms, and then bam, their kids grow up, and their identity has changed. They don't know what to do with themselves, because that was who they were, and now their kids are gone, and everything's good, but their identity, their name has been taken. Or these firemen, I see them all the time, these guys that retire, and they, they were the blue shirts, and they were the red trucks, and now it's gone, and nobody cares, and they don't know what to do with themselves. Are we, is that how we're identified, or are we identified by the things that have happened to us, our past, right? The, the things that have been done to us, or we just, or our mistakes, or our failures? Is that how people see, is that who I am? Am I just my sin? Am I just my mistakes? Am I just the abuse I endure, endured from someone else? I was talking to a friend a couple months ago that's in recovery, and, and you know, he was telling me, he's like, you know, man, I... I I'm not a drunk. I'm not alcoholic. I'm not those things. But I just feel all the time that that's the only way people view me. And I know that that's not me. But I just can't stop thinking that's how they view me. His past. Is he identified only by his past? How are you identified? Are you marked by divorce? Is Is that you? Or maybe abuse, sexual abuse? Physical abuse? Rejection? Is that what people see? Are you cursed? Even things that have happened to you that you had nothing to do with, is that your identity? Is that the way the world will say you are? Is that how you see yourself? Man, with Jesus, those things may be, may, maybe have been true, but with Jesus, he gives us new names. And he brings me into his house, and he calls me a son, he calls me a daughter. Maybe I used to be those things, and some of that was true, whether they were my fault or not. But in Jesus, I get a new identity. I become a son. I become a daughter of God. Whereas it says in the letter, the letter finally gets written, Ezra 5, verse 10. I asked them their names, and this is what they said. We are servants of God now. 
We are rebuilding his house. Their identities got changed. They're no longer identified by their past, their slavery, their sin, their bondage, their captiveness, Babylon. They're now, we belong to God. Yes, maybe we used to be, you know, owned by another house, but now we're servants. We're slaves of the king. And it's so much better. And that's the song of the redeemed. That's the gospel. This is a foreshadowing of you and I. Have you been picking it up with me? I've been trying to paint this the best that I can. It's we, you and I, we were once slaves in another house. We were cursed. We were cut off. We are identified by something else, by some past sin that we committed or some uh, trauma that happened to us of no fault of our own. And we, are, we were slaves. We were given a new name. We were, we were the offspring of Babylon. You and I, all of us, we were like Zerubbabel. We were once slaves, cursed, cut off, cursed family. You feel like you have a cursed family? You know what I mean? We were gone astray. We were no longer identified. But Jesus, Jesus changes everything. Like, like Abby's saying, Jesus changes everything. Look at Haggai 2 with me. On that day, the Lord of hosts, he's speaking directly to this man who's been cursed, cut off, the offspring of Babylon, you and I. I will take you, Zerubbabel, and make you like what? A royal ring, for I have chosen you. So what does God do for me? I've cut off, I, I'm, I'm marked by my past, and he picks me up and he makes me a son. And when I am a son of the king, I'm royalty. And he puts me back, he reverses the curse. And I get a new identity, you get a new identity. That's what he does. We were like Zerubbabel, we were like Joshua, Jeshua, coming in with all these, the weight of the world on our shoulders, not sure how to live, stepping into these places, just constantly hoping I can keep all the things juggling in life. See, Haggai was one of the prophets, but Zechariah was another one. And he had these crazy visions, man. You've got to go read the book of Zechariah. I really recommend it. Uh, it's like revelation type stuff, really neat. But he has this picture and he speaks to Jeshua. Uh, God does in this vision, and I want, to, I want to read it to you. It says this, Zechariah 3, verse 3. Remember the symbolism. Then he showed me Jeshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So there he is, Jeshua. He's standing before God and standing before the angel of the Lord, which in English it translates to that, but most scholars and com com uh, commentaries believe this is the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. Angel means messenger. God means Yahweh, the messenger that speaks for God. And you'll see when he speaks, he speaks like Jesus. So they believe this is Jesus. So he's standing before the divine counsel of God. God is there, Jesus himself, and Satan is accusing him. Accusing, he's, a, he's worthless. Look at him. Look at him, Jesus. He's worthless. He's marked by his past. He's cut off. He's cursed. He's full of sin. He's worthless. He's accusing him. And look at this. This is so cool, man. Then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And listen to what he says. Is this man not a burning stick snatched from the fire? And does, gosh, does our lives sometimes just feel like we were burned up, charred up, where it's almost over, and God just reaches in and he pulls me out. And that's what he would say to Satan. Is this man not mine? Did I not reach into the worst parts of his life, of her life, and pull them out? They're mine. Incredible. 
you could insert your name into this. Verse 3, now Dave, now Joe, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So he's standing there being accused. I'm being accused of all my mistakes only by my old identity and all I'm wearing is filthy rags. It's like I don't have anything to offer God. All I am is just this, this dirty rags. Then the angel said to those who were standing before him, now listen to how this sounds like Jesus, take those filthy clothes off of him. Then he said to Joshua, look what he says to him, see, I've taken away your sin. Remember when Jesus would say that when he walked on the earth, he would tell them. Sometimes he would say it to them before he healed them. He says, your sins are forgiven. I I forgive you. There he is. He's saying it. This is God himself. I'm taking the rags off. I'm I'm erasing the curse and I'm forgiving sin. It's like, I could just, can you imagine? And I will put fine garments on you. And they, they put a turban on his head and clean clothes on. Are we not like that burning branch? Do we not feel like we're just burning or we're just rags? And when Jesus, he gets a hold of me, he makes me a son and he puts, a ring, he puts me on, he puts me in the royal family and then he, then he clothes me with holy, clean garments and makes me a priest in his house, a servant in his house, a royal priest. And maybe you're in this room today and you're resonating with some of these things. You're like, yeah, I all, I'm, I'm marked by my past. I'm marked by the abuse. I'm marked by my, my failures. I, I, to be honest with you, but I, I'll hold back on Christianity because I don't think I'm worthy. I don't think God could love me in this state. When I stand before God, I feel like it's just worthless. If, you, if that's you today, hear the Spirit of God say to you, if that's you, when Derek comes up and we have time for prayer, come and stand before God like Joshua, like Jeshua, and let Jesus tell you what he thinks of you. You're a burning branch that I love, that I would chase, that I would seek like a hound. I'll do anything to get to you just so I could look you in the eye and tell you, see ya, I take away your sin. He is beautiful. There's no one like Jesus. Receive that. Jesus will come and he will silence Satan. He will silence the accusers. He will silence the accusations you make against yourself and your own heart and offer you peace. I told you we started with this. We're going to end this. Verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch. So we were a burnt up branch. And who is Jesus? He's the branch. He's very much God, but he's also very much human like I. That's why he could bleed. That's why he could take my sin. I'm going to send him. See that stone I set in front of you that has the seven facets on it. I'm engraving. I'm writing the story of my kingdom, of my people, of my children on it, says the Lord, and on that day I will remove the sin of the land in a single day, Golgotha, and one day he took it all. And on that day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under the vine and the fig tree. Proximity, unfinished, busted up, but when we get Jesus, and we bring people near life course and we bring them near our lives. We're pr- just come sit under the shade. Come sit near the ocean of grace. If you get close to him, he'll tell you that he'll forgive sin. Just give him your heart and you'll build a house there because Jesus builds his house in hearts. Will you stand? Father, we love you. 
We thank you, Jesus. I know I get all spiritual and pumped up and everything, but God, I just sense there are people in this room that some of these things in these verses as resonate with them in their hearts. And God, I just pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as your spirit moves this morning. May you be glorified above all else. May we talk as much as we can and point as many people to the cross and invite as many, many people to come sit under the vine in the victory of his grace, the shade of his peace and of his love.